Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For the last 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag, pour yourself a cuppa, and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this latest edition of Footsteps of the Fallen. And as usual, before we begin, thank you to all of you who've downloaded the podcast over the last week or so. And those of you who have been kind enough to reach out and leave feedback. Uh, it's very much appreciated and thank you for taking the time to do so. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to and want to be kept updated as soon as a new episode is released, then don't forget to subscribe on from wherever you download your podcasts and that way you will be notified as soon as a new episode is released and I'd like to just say thank you to some of our supporters particularly who've been kind enough to have made a contribution towards the podcast through buymeacoffee.com or patreon and I really am very grateful to you so a special thanks this week go to Kenny Moore for his very generous donation on buymeacoffee.com and to our latest patron of Footsteps of the Fallen, Matt Wilson. Thank you, both of you, very much indeed. It's extremely generous of you and your support is very much appreciated. Thank you. So where are we in today's journey through the Footsteps of the Fallen? Well, our journey begins a few years ago on one of the first experiences I had of being a battlefield tour guide. I was looking after two very nice gentlemen by the names of Bernard and Malcolm and it was their first visit to the Ypres salient and they were very very nice men very affable very amiable and uh, we were having a, a thoroughly good day and as we were going through the village of Zonibika one of them asked if it was possible to stop at a shop a, a pharmacy and there was one open on the main street in Zonibika itself so I pulled the car over and they both got out and walked back and disappeared into the pharmacy. And I stayed in the car. I was looking at the map to see where we were going next. And I suddenly realised after about half an hour that neither of them had actually come back to the car. And thinking that something might be terribly wrong or terribly amiss, as I got out of the car and I walked back to the pharmacy and there was no sign of either of them. So I carried on and looked in the bar that was there and there was no sign of them there either. And I came to the end of the road where was a four-way road junction with a roundabout in the middle of it and I came across the site of Bernard and Malcolm standing on the roundabout with a tape measure in hand and were duly measuring the dimensions of the roundabout and this was not normal behavior for a, a battlefield tour but they seemed to be quite happy and when they spotted me they both came back across the road both nearly got run over in the process because they looked the wrong way um and understandably i asked them what they were doing and it turned out that they were both members of the roundabout appreciation society i had no idea that such a, an esteemed organization existed but it duly did and they told me at 
great length about the society and uh, Malcolm had in fact been the Lord of the Ring, as they were called, the chairman of the Roundabout Appreciation Society. And they were thoroughly excited about this roundabout because, as they told me in extraordinary detail, it was very rare to find a roundabout with jewel-coloured aggregate in it. Um, I have to take their word for this. And this, of course, occurred to me that if they were roundabout aficionados, there was, of course, on the ring road at E. There is a very unique roundabout indeed. It consists of a large sculpture of a tap which appears to be suspended in mid-air with water flowing out of the bottom of it and I thought well if they are roundabout aficionados I will take them to see this roundabout which we duly did and they were to be fair to them enamoured with the tap roundabout and in fact I think that it was possibly for them the highlight of their entire visit to Ypres that day, which may say something about my skills as a battlefield guide. But it's to one of the roundabouts at Ypres that we're going to head to begin our journey through the footsteps of the fallen today. Our journey today begins at the particularly unattractive location of a very large roundabout on the main road which runs out to the east of the town of It's a road junction that doesn't really have very much aesthetically going for it, although I'm sure Bernard and Malcolm would probably disagree with me on that. But it marks the spot of what was one of the most important and dangerous places anywhere in the Ypres salient. It was called Hellfire Corner, and during the Great War, it was widely regarded as being the most dangerous place on earth. Hellfire Corner during the Great War was the intersection of the main road which ran from Ypres towards the front line and the road that ran down to the south towards the town of Menin. And it was surrounded on all sides by high ground under constant German observation and any movement was vigorously shelled in this area. During the Great War, the landscape around this area was a featureless wilderness of shell holes and shattered trees and dead men and horses and some attempts were made to make it more secure by putting hessian screening up along the side of the road in an attempt to obscure movement away from the germans but all of this was done to very little avail as it remained firmly zeroed in by german artillery and as we said any form of movement here prompted response from the germans and it was an extremely dangerous place to be but of course it was the main supply route out to the east of Ypres and the Germans knew this and because of this it gained particularly special attention from German artillery. The dangers of trying to negotiate Hellfire Corner were described in the Derbyshire Advertiser newspaper in July 1915 by a man called Corporal Sam Robinson, he was a member of the 14th Signal Company, and he described crossing Hellfire Corner as follows. On our way to the trenches, we had to pass a spot which had been very aptly christened Hellfire Corner, owing to its being so dangerously exposed to German shellfire. There is no cover whatsoever at this point, and the danger zone has to be covered at the sprint. I never posed as a runner in all my life, but I'd like to bet the necessary in evens on this occasion. Because... Of the danger of going over Hellfire Corner, I mean, the majority of traffic movements were done 
at night and this caused bottlenecks and traffic jams and the route became very very busy but with the necessity to move vast numbers of troops and vast numbers of supplies it often wasn't possible for all movements to be conducted during the cover of nightfall and the junction was manned usually by a military policeman who was responsible for controlling traffic and can only imagine that it must be a pretty miserable existence to be standing on the most dangerous road junction on earth. With the usual grim humour of the times the soldiers would put signs up warning of the dangers that were to be encountered at Hellfire Corner and one famous sign stood there that said hurry up, if you don't get killed, someone else probably will. And there was, on the main junction, a sign that was one of the original signs that stood there during the Great War, and it reappeared after the war in a shop window on Prince's Street in Edinburgh. And how exactly did it get there? Well, it was borrowed, stolen, purloined, however you want to put it, by a man called... William Storey. He was a, a solicitor who came from Jedburgh and he served during the war with the Royal Army Service Corps. And when he left the Western Front at the end of the war, he brought the original Hellfire Corner sign back with him and he placed it in the window of his shop as a, a very cunning ploy to generate custom to get people to come into his shop and the display of this board caused quite a stir there were a number of letters that were um, written to the local press and story himself received numerous offers from people to buy it and one anonymous veteran who saw the board the name board in story shop wrote to the edinburgh Gazette and his letter said for several weeks in 1918 I had worked and slept within the shadow of that sign along with another man I was quartered in a dugout just at the corner it was quite a handsome habitation done up inside like a kitchen fireplace and all many a shell burst around but our dwelling providently as we thought escaped a direct hit apart from the danger for it was one of the most dangerous places in Europe it was my pleasantest experience of the whole war we dwelt lonely, freed from regimental rule. To view the sign now is to recall something that seems like a dream. So easily do terrible experiences slip from the mind. One letter to the newspaper described the sign as the finest souvenir of the war that had ever been seen and was suggested that it really ought to be donated to a museum and this was a sentiment that was echoed by many other writers to the newspaper and for many years the calls to have it put into a museum went unanswered and after many years in despair in the shop window the hellfire corner sign was eventually put into a cupboard and forgotten all about and in 1996 some relations of the original Mr Story who brought it back discovered the sign again and gave it to the National Army Museum where thankfully it remains to this day. With the exception of the thundering traffic that comes past this is actually quite a, a peaceful area and like many areas of the western front something that we've talked about quite a lot in these podcasts is it's very difficult to equate what happened during the war and what this looked like during the war to what it looks like today but on the roundabout itself just as you head towards Ypres in the direction of Ypres on the right hand side is one of 
the most recognisable and iconic memorials to be found anywhere along the Western Front. It's called a demarcation stone. It's about one metre high. It's made of pink granite. And I will post a picture of it on my on the website in the podcast page so you can see what I'm talking about. But what they are, in effect, is a series of stone monuments which run along the battle line of the Western Front. And they represent the furthest point that the Germans advanced during the First World War. They were the idea of a French sculptor by the name of Paul Moreau Vautier in 1920. And it was an idea really was to commemorate with a line of memorials, the line of departure from where the Allies had launched their victorious offensive against the German army in the summer of 1918. And the original idea had been to place a stone memorial every kilometre along the 650 kilometres of the Western Front, running from Newport on the Belgian coast down to the Swiss border. When the project first began, there was great enthusiasm for it from the public and it was very well supported financially and the first demarcation stone was inaugurated on the 11th of November 1921 at Chateau Thierry in the department of the Marne and more demarcation stones were put along the western front but public support for the project began to wane before it had been completed and in total in seven years between 1921 and 1927 118 demarcation stones were put in place and 22 of them were in Belgium and 96 were in France and the last one was placed on a mountain in the Vosges called uh, the Vieille Armand and it was known to the Germans as the Hartmannsweilerkopf and it was the scene of fierce fighting between France and Germany in the later months of 1914 and early 1915. Two more stones were finally put up in 1929-1930, but the completion and the project to have over 200 monuments every few kilometres was never finished due to a lack of funds. And During the Second World War, 20 Four of the demarcation stones were destroyed, three of which were in Belgium and 21 were in France. So what do they look like? Well, each monument is one metre high and on the top of the monument is a laurel wreath and a helmet, either Belgian, British or French, depending on who was holding the sector, where it was located. And on the left and right sides of the monument, there are pieces of uh, equipment used by fighting troops be it a water bottle or a gas mask case and there is a grenade with flame bursting out of it carved on each of the four corners and it bears an inscription which says ici fut repoussé l'envahisseur which translates as from here the invader was pushed back so as we continue our journey through this part of the battlefield we're going to turn our back metaphorically speaking on hellfire corner and head up the gently sloping road that runs away from Ypres as it climbs up the side of the Fresenberg and Bellawada ridges as we head towards the small village of Hooge and as we come up the road that we see 
on our right hand side the unmistakable site of a Commonwealth War Cemetery and we're going to pay a visit there as we head up the ridge. The cemetery is called Burr Crossroads, it stands on yet another important road junction in this part of the battlefield and it contains one grave in particular that's especially interesting, particularly for those who have any interest in the medical services. Like all Commonwealth cemeteries it's beautifully laid out, it's not particularly big by Belgian standards, it's got about eight hundred graves in it and there are some what are called special markers in the cemetery and these are markers to men who are believed to be buried in the cemetery but whose graves were lost either during subsequent fighting or destroyed by shell fire so there's a reasonable belief that they are buried in there but they can't be a hundred percent certain and one of these special memorials is to a man who served with the six battalion the Royal Berkshire Regiment. His name was Captain Harold Ackroyd and he won not only a military cross but also a Victoria Cross for his actions during the fighting around this part of Belgium in 1917. He'd been awarded his military cross for his actions at the Battle of Delville Wood on the Somme in 1916 and his Victoria Cross was awarded posthumously to him in August 1917 and his citation in the London Gazette reads as follows. For most conspicuous bravery during recent operations Captain Ackroyd displayed the greatest gallantry and devotion to duty. Utterly regardless of danger he worked continuously for many hours up and down in front of the line tending to the wounded and saving the lives of officers and men. In doing so he had to move across the open under heavy machine gun, rifle and shell fire. He carried a wounded officer to a place of safety under very heavy fire. On another occasion, he went some way in front of our advanced line and brought in a wounded man under continuous sniping and machine gun fire. His heroism was the means of saving many lives and provided a magnificent example of courage, cheerfulness and determination to the fighting men in whose midst he was carrying out his splendid work. This gallant officer has since been killed in action. So as we leave the cemetery at Burr Crossroads and turn right back up the main road, we then head down the next road on the right. And as you progress down what's essentially a country lane with farmer's fields on either side, the sound of the traffic very soon dies away and is replaced by the sounds of the countryside of birds singing and the gentle buzz of insects. And the ground rises gently to my left. And as you look across you're given a magnificent view of a very large cemetery which lies on the downward side of the slope as you look at it. The cemetery is Hooge Crater Cemetery and it's somewhere that we're going to pay a visit to in a later podcast. And in the and the, in the fields in between the cemetery and the road in which I'm currently standing used to stand during the Great War a wood by the name of Zouave Wood. Now Zouaves was the name given to French colonial troops from North Africa who served on behalf of the French as part of their colonial empire during the Great War. And it was at Zouave Wood on the evening of the 30th of July 1915 that the Germans once again plumbed to new depths of brutality where they used flamethrowers for the first time in battle. And the fighting in this area was particularly brutal around this time in 1915. And as we continue past where Zwavwood 
once stood, we come on our right-hand side to a cemetery where many of the men who were killed during this fighting in 1915 are buried. The cemetery sits on the edge of what is called Sanctuary Wood, and Sanctuary Wood itself is one of the most remarkable places anywhere on the Western Front. And before we head to Sanctuary Wood and the preserved trenches, we're going to pay a visit to Sanctuary Wood Cemetery itself, as it was in the skies above Sanctuary Wood that a man by the name of Leno Hawker became the first fighter pilot in the Royal Flying Corps to be awarded the Victoria Cross. The action for which Hawker was awarded the Victoria Cross took place on the 25th of July 1915, where during aerial combat he shot down three German aircraft. And whilst there were other pilots who later in the war also shot down three aircraft, his was the first time this had happened. And it was unusual at that time in aerial combat to shoot anybody down, let alone three in a single day. And the observer of the middle plane that he shot down that day was a German by the name of Hans Rosa, and he is the solitary German who lies buried in Sanctuary Wood Cemetery, which is appropriate as it was in the air above this exact spot that he was shot down and his plane crashed, causing him to lose his life. As we leave the cemetery at Sanctuary Wood and turn right and continue walking up Canada Strata. We come after about 400 metres to a museum and cafe. And in the back of this museum is one of a one of the most remarkable sites anywhere on the Western Front. The back garden, I suppose you'd call it, or the, the back area of the museum contains a large collection of British trenches which are in their original positions from the fighting at the time of the Great War. Now, there's been a lot of debate amongst historians as to whether these trenches were actually real or whether they were dug after the war as a tourist trap, but some research by Paul Reed and the use of modern GPS technology has allowed us to establish that these were definitely British second-line trenches from the time of the battle of Passchendaele. And the museum itself is remarkable. It's got a, an incredible collection of First World War artefacts and memorabilia, a vast collection of weapons and uniforms. But what is perhaps the most striking feature of the museum at Sanctuary Wood are the stereoscopes. Now these are old viewing devices that allow three-dimensional images printed on cellulose to be seen through like a pair of binoculars and you turn a handle and the images move through and the images come largely from German and French sources and they are some of the most horrifying and the most gruesome First World War images that I've ever seen. They show the human destruction and the effect of the battlefield on the bodies of the dead in a level of detail that one very rarely sees in British First World War records. I think it's something that people should see, but if you do ever find yourself there and you're of a nervous disposition, then you may wish to avoid looking through the stereoscope. As you go out into the back of the museum at Sanctuary Wood before you come to the trenches there's a huge collection of munitions of shell cases and mortars and 
things like that. It's it's a remarkable place and it's a very special place to take visitors to the battlefields because it is obviously with the exception of sandbags and the smells and sounds of battle, it is about as realistic a representation of what British trenches were like during the Great War as you're able to find anywhere on the Western Front. As we come out of the museum and turn right once again to our final stop on this walking tour of this part of the Ypres battlefield. The area that we are currently in is known as Hill 62 and the name was given to the height of the hill in metres above sea level and specific points on the Western Front which were known as spot points are often marked on maps together with their height in metres and that was the case here where the, the top of the hill was 62 metres above sea level and it was known commonly as Mount Sorrel and on the top of Hill 62 is a memorial to the men of the Canadian Army who fought a heroic action here in 1916. The one thing that's apparent from standing on the top of Hill 62 is the tremendous advantage that any gain in height provides. It's a magnificent observation point and you can see huge swathes of the Ypres battlefield and then you can see clearly back to the city of Ypres itself and see the spires of the cathedral and the cloth hall and it's easy to see why even small gains in height were strategically and tactically so significant to those that held it. The Canadians as part of the empire were one of the first empire forces to join with the British in the fighting in the First World War and they first went into action in 1915 at the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle before they were moved up into the sector at Ypres where as we've seen in a previous podcast on the 22nd of April 1915 they withstood the full force of the first German gas attack that took place at Langemark about four miles north of where we're standing at the moment. The Canadians remained in this part of the Ypres salient for the rest of 1915 and into 1916. And it was in June 1916 that the men of the Canadian division withstood brutal German attack in what was to become known as the Battle of Sanctuary Wood. German attack began on the 2nd of June 1916 at 8.30 in the morning, where an artillery bombardment of particularly savage nature was unleashed on the Canadian troops. It took the life of the divisional commander, a man by the name of General Malcolm Smith Mercer, and the Canadians, particularly the first Canadian mounted rifles who were in trenches at Hill 62, suffered very heavy casualties. By one o'clock in the afternoon, they'd lost 367 men, whilst the 4th Canadian Infantry to their right at a place called Hill 60 had lost an incredible 637 men out of a strength of just 680. The Germans' attack was pushed forward, and in the afternoon, the Canadians had been overrun, and many of their communication trenches were in German hands. They'd lost 17 out of their 22 officers and at one stage they were having to fire both forwards and backwards which earned them the right rather like the Gloucesters to be allowed to wear their cap badge on both the front and the back of their caps. The Germans were on the point of a breakthrough which would allow them to sweep down the ridge through Sanctuary Wood 
and then have an unopposed path into Ypres itself. And the Canadians rushed up as many reserves as they could from Ypres and along with the King's Royal Rifle Corps, they took over positions in the line which allowed the Canadians to move their forces southwards to meet the expected German offensive. And the Canadian Corps commander gave uh, an order to launch a counter-attack at dawn the following morning. But rather like we saw at the Battle of Luz, many of the reserves had already been thrown into the battle to try and stop the German advance. So it meant that the orders for the counter-attack weren't issued until nearly 10 o'clock in the evening. And the task of trying to take Hill 62 was given to the Canadian 3rd Brigade, who were way back in core reserve, which meant that they had to get ready, move out and make their way up to Hill 62 in the middle of the night. They were supposed to be there by 2 o'clock in the morning to coincide with the artillery bombardment that was due to help their assault. But there were delays and they had to navigate their way through a mile-long communication trench which was being shelled and was filled with dead and wounded men. So as it happened, they didn't go into attack until 7 o'clock the following morning and the artillery support that they received was wholly inadequate for the task in hand and they suffered heavy casualties but they were at least able to stabilise the line in the vicinity of Sanctuary Wood itself. Indeed it wasn't until the 13th of June in the early hours of the morning where an artillery barrage of over 200 guns opened up on the German lines and the Canadians were able to gain back most of the ground that they'd lost. And as it was, the line in this particular area stabilised until the Battle of Passchendaele almost a year later in July 1917. And the memorial which stands on the top of Mount Sorrel is very peaceful. It's beautifully laid out. The horticulture is wonderful. And as I said, it makes it offers a wonderful observation point of this part of the Ypres battlefield. And on a clear day, the view back to Ypres itself is spectacular and it's very peaceful to stand and listen to the birds singing and look at the the flora and the fauna that has been planted in what is now a place of complete tranquility that was during those few days in June 1916 little more than the graveyard of the Canadian army. So thank you very much indeed for joining me on this walk from Hellfire Corner to Hill 62. It's a slightly different approach to some of the podcasts that we've done before. And I think we will probably do some more of these battlefield walks where we're taking a small section of the battlefield and look at it in slightly more detail. So thank you very much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed it and I'm very much looking forward to the pleasure of your company in our next episode when we continue to walk in the footsteps of the fallen.